What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. So, Mark. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back to Deep Trouble, people. Thank you for listening. Now, we've got a, another exciting interview in Deep Trouble today. Professor Bain Atwood, Mark, tell us about Professor Atwood. Professor Bain Atwood is a professor of history at Monash University, and he's the author of The Good Country, which is the history of the Zsa Zsa people and also the history of the protectorate system that was set up in Franklin Fort to protect the Zsa Zsa from the local settlers. Right, so we've talked a little bit about this before with Uncle Rick Nelson, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. So with Uncle Rick Nelson, we focused on some of the history, culture and mythology of the Zsa Zsa And this interview predominantly focuses on the history of the protectorate system and settlement. Great. Okay, so sort of a, a part two in our series on the Zsa Zsa Let's not waste any more time, Mark. Let's just launch into it. Sure. The first question that I had was in relation to your work as a historian. I'm interested in why you'd chosen the local area and the Zsa Zsa people and the protectorate system to focus your uh, research on. I guess that question has a couple of answers. The first answer is really what we might call a happenstance, uh, something like 20 years ago now. Uh, I was approached by a professional archaeologist by the name of Nicholas Clark, and he had been commissioned by the Jajarang to prepare a historical report, uh, and this was funded by the National Estate. And Nicholas Clark was overcommitted, and he asked me whether I would be interested in doing such a report. And I agreed to do that, and I wrote a report of something like 20,000 words. And the Department of History at Monash University, where I worked, had a publication series at that time, and we published that report. And in the years that followed, there was enormous local interest. We did a small print run of this book in the first instance, but then over the years, there was growing or continuing demand for it, um, but eventually this publication series was discontinued and so the book went out of print. And people in the area, uh, such as one of the white reconciliation leaders, Vic Say, repeatedly urged me to put it back into print and uh, I agreed to do that. But at the point where I decided to do that, after a conversation with um, one of the Jajarang Gary Murray, he persuaded me that more research had been done in the years since I had done that historical report and suggested to me that it would be unwise to simply put the book back into print. And I, I took his advice and I returned to the book and I learned that there were historical sources that I had overlooked. And so the book then got a second life. And so the second answer to the question is that I thought when I returned to the book that the history of the Jajarang was a very important history to tell because it can be argued that partly as a result of the protectorate, it's a distinctive history. And I became increasingly committed to what you can learn by doing local history, um, by, by doing what I described in the book at one point as a, as a tribal history, as compared to writing a national history or even the history of a region such as Victoria. So those are the, really the, the points that I became, various stages in time, committed to doing a history of the Jajarana. I guess the first time that I encountered this information was... Jeff Morrison's uh, book, A Successful Failure, which was about the protectorate system in Franklin Fort. 
your book expands a lot on that. And I wondered if there was some sort of emotional connection for you after all these years of research. I would have to say there's an, an emotional connection, but it's not an emotional connection, I have to confess, to the place or even really the people. It's more a emotional commitment to the value of rigorous historical research to trying to do what a historian can do using the methods of the discipline of history to recover what, as is so often the case, uh, a complex past, uh, a messy past, if you like, in the sense that it's not simple, and trying to lay out this history and convince people that it's important and that it's a complex past that we have to grapple with. I guess the struggle for a historian is the reconstruction of the past based upon historical records, which may be biased. Yes, I guess that's always a problem, but I think when we do what's often called Aboriginal history, there's a a particular problem as far as historical sources go because the Aboriginal people had an oral culture rather than a, a literary culture, and so... The historical record is overwhelmingly created by the Europeans. One might say that you know, when you try and do indigenous history anywhere in the world, this is a problem. But the problem is probably greater in Australia for a range of reasons. In the case of the Jajarunk, we're relatively fortunate in that the time when their lands began to be colonised coincided with the establishment of the Port Phillip Protectorate and more particularly with the appointment of Edward Parker as an assistant protector to an area which included their country. And George Augustus Robinson as the chief protector made tours, if you like, through Jajarang country, kept the journal. And so the record is, as I've just said, it's relatively rich. But what we also always have to remember in the Australian context is, as I said before, the record is overwhelmingly European. Sometimes you can get some Aboriginal voices, but there are always going to be limitations to what historians can recover of the Aboriginal perspective. And that I think we always have to keep in mind. It's a problem partly because, as I said before, Aboriginal people had an oral culture rather than a literary culture, and so they're not creating a record that remains stable over time like a written record does. It's also the case that the Jajarung, like a lot of Aboriginal people, were you know, were really decimated in the wake of British colonisation, largely through introduced diseases. And, of course, where you have such large-scale depopulation, the capacity for Indigenous old tradition to pass on across time, their perspective of what happened is, in my view, quite limited. I did want to talk to you about that, about the intersection of European colonisation, British imperial colonisation and the mythology of the Aboriginal people. Uh, I thought one of the most interesting parts in your book was about Uh, the first contact with Major Mitchell, the Major Mitchell line, which spread smallpox amongst the Aboriginal population, which, according to your research or the research you cite, the the population of a a tribe like the Jaja Rurung, 16 to 24 patrilineal clans, uh, was about 2,000 people, and and about two-thirds of that was wiped out by smallpox. What is the story in terms of mythology that the Aboriginal people created to explain that event? Well, as far as we can tell, it's very much in terms of the action of a serpent figure. Uh, so they're very much drawing. Um, it's not surprising. They're trying to understand uh, what is happening by using traditional frameworks of thought. They, of course, haven't encountered such a disease as smallpox before and in trying to understand it. They do, as I've just said, try and understand this in terms of their traditional mythology. I think this is you know, quite common in terms of contact between Indigenous people and Europeans, that, you know, in the beginning at least. 
this is what Indigenous people do uh, in, the, in the fullness of time. They, they tended to adopt other ways of understanding what was going on. But in the first instance, they are understanding it in the terms that they're familiar with. And also a question I had in relation to the way that the protectorate system evolved. The Aboriginal Protection Society was formed in May 1837, I think, from what were called evangelical philanthropists in the British Empire, who had actually brought an end to slavery. What was the purpose of the Aboriginal Protection Board? As you've just said, British evangelicals who had been fighting for the abolition of slavery, once that campaign succeeds, they turn their attention to the plight of Indigenous people in the British Empire. One of their leading figures, Thomas Fowl Buxton, persuades the British House of Commons in 1835 to establish a select committee inquiry. The inquiry is mostly focused on the Cape Colony and what becomes South Africa, but it's also interested in other areas of British settlement, Van Diemen's Land, New South Wales. And one of its great concerns is the devastation of Indigenous people that is occurring, and it very much speaks what we might call the language of protection. Now, in response to the recommendations of the Select Committee, which are brought down in 1837, the British Secretary of State for the Colonies, Lord Glenelg, directs Sir George Gibbs, as the Governor of New South Wales, to create a protectorate. Uh, it's agreed that a protectorate is going to be established in the Port Phillip district of New South Wales, in other words, what later becomes Victoria, and it's decided that a chief protector is going to be appointed as well as four assistant protectors. This takes you know, some time to happen, partly because of the distance between Britain and, and New South Wales. But by 1839, as far as I recall, George Augustus Robinson and the four assistant protectors arrive in Melbourne and eventually the assistant protectors take up residence, each of them in the four areas that they've been assigned. And the idea of the Protectorate is to try and uphold Aboriginal rights of law in the sense that if they suffer injury, the uh, Protectors are supposed to try and prosecute the perpetrators of those injuries they are supposed to provide protection in other forms and there's a strong interest in what they called civilising and Christianising the Aboriginal people. There are various points in that that I'm going to come back to. My understanding of the history to some extent, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Protection Board or the Protection Society was set up as sort of an indirect relation to what happened in Van Diemen's Land. The Black War, which resulted in an almost extermination of Tasmanian Aboriginals, and that they didn't want that to occur again in the Port Phillip district, which is now Victoria. There's two really different, I suppose, sources of action here. One is the Aboriginal Protection Society, which is, you know, which is a political organisation which is established in London, and then there's the work of the, you know, the British House of Commons Select Committee. I think it's undoubtedly the case that the British Select Committee between 1835 and 1837 are responding to what's happening on the colonial peripheries, whether that be in the Cape Colony and what becomes part of South Africa later, what's happening in Van Diemen's Land, what's happening in New South Wales. And yes, there is this determination to try and prevent the worst of the excesses that was happening in those various places. So the British Select Committee is undoubtedly well informed about what has happened in Van Diemen's Land, um, what has been going on in New South Wales. And there is this view... Um, they're not opposed to colonisation, but evangelicals are very troubled by the nature of British colonisation. And hence this intervention and this belief that unless the government takes steps to try and protect Aboriginal people... There is this fear that Aboriginal people are going to be exterminated. And, and those are the words they use. 
they talk about extermination. Extermination is a, is a, is a commonly expressed fear at this time amongst these evangelicals. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Bain Atwood. I did want to ask you what your thoughts were uh, about the Chief Protector, George Augustus Robinson. Well, I think Robinson is a... Well, he's, obviously, he's a very important figure. I think he's a very complex figure. I think, you know, perhaps like any human being, what he does at one point of time could be different from what he did at a later point in time. I think that... By the time he becomes the chief protector of Aborigines for Victoria, he, how can one put this? He's probably become more self-interested by this stage than he probably was. What do you mean self-interested? Earlier. Well, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, if you look at his, his, his background, it's, it's, it's a very humble background. It's a working class background. I think in the beginning... He was probably much more sympathetic towards Aboriginal people and that guided his action more than it did at later points in time. Um, so by self-interested, I think he increasingly saw the role of Chief Protector as serving his interests and his ambition, his ego, if you like. I think that was increasingly the case. Well, I, yeah, I was interested in that because I, there was a part in your book where you talked about critiques of Robinson. I believe now, correct me if, if I'm wrong, he's the same George Augustus Robinson who was a, a conciliator in the Vandemonium War. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. yes. And, you know, um, there is you know, an increasing body of um, scholarship and an increasing body of critique about his, his role in that regard. I think in terms of the judge around here, he's a, a relatively unimportant figure. Parker is, is the more important figure because as an assistant protector who has responsibility for the area that includes judge run country, he is the one that is the more important part of their story, much more important figure than, than Robinson. I suppose I was really interested in asking you because I think you had painted your characters, these historical figures, in all their complexity. When I talked to Dr Brody, he talked about both Governor Arthur and, and John Batman, who had done things in Tasmania that they would rather that history forgot. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I know that Augustus Robinson, although still a you know evangelical and trying to convert the natives, he was doing that. He pushed them into the islands in Bass Strait where they imperished in mass. People were trying to escape from his friendly missions. Uh, he provided tactical military information to, to Arthur to aid the Black War. And so I wonder whether there was some sense for some of these men, uh, and this was Dr Brodie's take as well, that once they got to Victoria, they kind of had to make themselves over anew. Well, I think that's possible, but I think it's also important to grapple with the possibility that Robinson, in seeking to bring Aboriginal people in Tasmania, that he genuinely thought that if someone didn't play that role, the Aboriginal people were going to be worse off, that they were going to be more vulnerable to settler aggression. Yes. So I think you know, the vital task of us today is, is to recognise what was the reality on the ground and to try and understand as best we can what drove these men to do what they did and however troubling we might find or view what they did. And I think it is a real question what would have happened without these kinds of intervention? You know, whether we're talking about Van Diemen's Land or whether we're talking about the Jajaran, what would have happened to the Aboriginal people without these, these interventions by the figures that we can call protectors? You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Bain Atwood. Well, I think one of your critiques of Robinson was that, in fact, he was almost too overzealous and overplayed his hand with settlers. 
that he moved beyond his powers because he really did want to try and protect Aboriginals? Yes, I mean, I, I think one of the features of Robinson's personality, and it's and it part of, I think, his humble background, is that he wasn't necessarily very sure of whatever power he might have had, and particularly when he was in the company of men of a higher class. And you know, we must recall that this is a British society at the time, it's a deeply hierarchical society. And I think when he was in the company of men that he thought were of a higher class to himself, he, he felt it insecure and tended to, to overplay his hand. And I think, too, because he's morally zealous, and that's probably part of his zealousness is, I think, a response to his insecurity. He was probably over-inclined to condemn some of these settlers. I mean, some of them deserved... Uh, his condemnation, but I think some he was perhaps too inclined to rush to a judgment of them. Well, I think in terms of complexity, and you mentioned it before, a figure who was perhaps more important, which was Edward Stone Parker, who was the protector at Franklin Ford. I wonder what your thoughts on Parker are now and, and the relationship that he formed with the Zsa Zsa Wurrung. Well, again, I think it's important to recognise that this is a relationship that probably changes over the course of the Protectorate and the period after the Protectorate is abolished in 1849. I think for the early years, Parker is very much committed to protecting Aboriginal people. I mean, from certainly, you know, inevitably perhaps from his own perspective. I think that it's a very important relationship for the Jajarang. I think, as I say in the book, there's evidence that the Jajarung welcomed his entry into their country in the sense that they realised that they were in trouble, so to speak, from the encroachment on their land of the settlers, some of whom were clearly very aggressive, and that they looked to him for protection. I think there's ways in which they taught Parker how to behave in Aboriginal terms. I think for many of those early years, Parker is not the more powerful figure in the relationship between he and the Jarang. Uh, in many ways, in order for his work as an assistant protector to succeed, he needs, in a sense, their cooperation. And they saw uh, Franklin Fid as meeting their needs and their needs as Aboriginal people. And so they, for example, came and went from the reserve, depending on their need, which was often dictated by the seasons of the year. It's clear that they used the reserve for what we can call traditional purposes. And you know, there's really, at certain points, as you might say, accommodation between Parker, or conciliation between Parker and the Jajarung. Other points, there's, there's conflict. And clearly some of the older Jajarung men are very suspicious of Parker. I mean, who is this man? Why is he so concerned? Why, in his terms, is he acting in such a benevolent way? I, I think there's a real puzzlement on the part of many Jajarung. Who is this man? Why is he here? He's clearly different from the other whites that they have got to know. And it takes a while for that relationship to work itself out. I think across time, as Parker assumes other responsibilities for Aboriginal people elsewhere in Victoria, I think his time is increasingly divided between those responsibilities and his responsibilities to the judge around. I think so often the relationships between Aboriginal people and Europeans, certainly at that time, they are highly personal relationships. And so if Parker was increasingly absent, so too did the Jajarung absent themselves from Franklin Foot. I think by the time the Protectorate is abolished, Parker, you know, whose wife has died several years earlier, he remarries. He has more children by his second wife. By the state, he has a large family. I think he's increasingly concerned with how he is going to raise those children. And I think somewhat like Robinson, Parker becomes increasingly less concerned with Aboriginal people and more concerned with what his interests are. 
mean, that doesn't always mean that those, those interests conflict with Aboriginal people, but I think what I'm describing is that over time, whereas there's a degree of closeness and perhaps even intimacy between Parker and the Jajarang, over time, I think he becomes a more distant figure from them. I guess he's a complex figure today for people to encounter because he recognises he protects Aboriginals. I think he's genuine as an individual in that and he recognised Aboriginal land rights as most of the evangelical philanthropists did. But he's also an evangelical Christian with, I would say, a social Darwinist bent that wants to convert the savages to Christianity. So how should history view Edward Stone Parker? Well, uh, at the very least, as a as an ambiguous figure, that, as you say, he's somebody who is committed to protecting Aboriginal people. He passionately believes that Aboriginal people were the original owners of the land. This leads him to believe that British, including the settlers, owe some form of compensation to Aboriginal people, even if that's only in the form of ensuring that they get what is necessary in order to enable them to survive and enable them to enter into the colonial society. I think one of the questions to ask, as I really intimated before, is what would have happened to Aboriginal people without figures like Parker? And here I think it's important to note the research of historians Janet McCalman and Len Smith, which was done several years ago now, where they pointed out on the basis of their research on contemporary Victorian uh, Aboriginal families that all Victorian Aboriginal people, they trace their ancestry back to those Aboriginal people that were on reserves like Franklin's Hood and then the later reserves. I mean, to put that another way, Hmm. that the Aboriginal people who did not move on to reserves like Frankincert and later reserves like Coranger, those Aboriginal people, have, on the basis of Janet McCalman and Len Smith's work, those Aboriginal people have no living descendants. So, so in other words, it seems reasonable to conclude that without, first of all, the Port Phillip Protectorate and then later the Victorian Board for the Protection of Aborigines and the reserves that they established beginning in the early 1860s. It seems that without that intervention, Aboriginal people would not have survived in this part of Australia. Do we have another historical precedent for that in terms of, I mean, what occurred in Australia with settler colonisation and, and throughout history? Settler colonisation has occurred throughout the world uh, with devastating effects. Can we look to other places where this has occurred without a protection system and where the effects have been devastating? I suppose to make that kind of comparison, um, one would have to be very careful to investigate in particular historical circumstances of other settler colonies. And so, for example, if we would take the case of New Zealand, even though there is large-scale depopulation amongst Māori in New Zealand following large-scale British colonisation, Māori, at least according to my understanding, were not affected by epidemic disease in the same way as Aboriginal people. It can also be argued for various reasons, which in my view largely have to do with the particular history of contact and colonisation in New Zealand, that Māori, even though were very detrimentally affected by British colonisation, were not as badly affected by colonisation as Aboriginal people, for the most part, were in Australia. So I think you're raising an interesting question, but I, don't, I think it's a difficult question. I guess my answer is you have to be sure that you were looking at all the, the different variables before you could conclude one way or the other whether this happened in other areas of colonisation. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Bain Atwood. I think your book does try to address the complexity of history in much the same way what occurred in Tasmania was that Aboriginal people from certain tribes, such as Manalagena was one who worked with uh, Europeans like Robinson 
to track down other tribes because they actually had an enmity with that tribe. Mm. Uh, and so the, there was a lot of complex relationships going on that it wasn't just Europeans against Aboriginal people. In, in some cases, it was Aboriginal people using Europeans and Europeans using Aboriginal people to get other Aboriginal tribes. Well, I, I was just going to not surprisingly agree with I think w what I've tried to do in, in this book is to say that I think it's a mistake to treat this history in simple terms of the Europeans on the one hand and the Aboriginal people on the other. I think at the very least, it's a relationship which includes the relationships between Aboriginal peoples, so in this case, the relationships between the Jajarung and the neighbouring Aboriginal tribes or nations, to try and treat the whites as something other than a homogenous group. And so clearly, I think, it's in a way, it's the title of the book partly suggests, I'm trying to look at a relationship which really has four parties, the settlers in the sense of the pastoralists and their men, the protectors in terms of figures like Robinson and Parker, the Jajarung, and then the other Aboriginal nations. And I think one can really only understand what happens if you keep in mind the relationships between those four groups that I think too often in the past historians have assumed that the whites come and then what is most important from an Aboriginal point of view is the relationship they have with the white settlers. Whereas clearly what continues to be the case is Aboriginal people's relationship between themselves, in this case between the Jajarung and other Aboriginal people, continues to be vitally important to what's going on. I did want to talk to you about that because that was an important element of your book. Um, I did want to ask you about this because I think it, it, you can address this, but uh, this is this is only second-hand information for me as well. Um, but I was told that when you launched The Good Country in Castlemaine that there were, I think... Jaja were rung Aboriginal women there who were descendants and they were understandably upset by some of the historical claims like the one about uh, Aboriginal men form, trying to form kinship relationships by offering Aboriginal women. That wasn't something that they expressed at the time. And right. they, um, I think they were more concerned that, and partly this was, I think, a moment of misunderstanding, is that in the course of you know, the discussion that Rani Kieran and myself and Vic Say were having, and as you know from reading the book, part of uh, the story I tell is that I suggest that the relationships between the Jajarung and the pastoralists were relatively peaceful. And I, and I say that most of the conflict, or right, I'll put this another way, most of the violence that was committed by Aboriginal people towards settlers in Jajarung country seems to have been committed by, not by the Jajarung, but by some of the neighbouring Aboriginal nations. What I was not saying, but which I think uh, some of the descendants who were there thought I was saying, they thought that I was saying that some of the pastoralists were not violent towards the Jajarung. And that's not, as you know from reading the book, that's not what I say. No. And so that was part of their concern. And so they, quite properly, I think, you know, said what they wanted to say. And I was reluctant to talk about it because, as I said, it was only uh, second-hand information from someone who had attended the book launch and, and may have misunderstood the context of the situation. Yes, I um, mean, it was, it was um, you know, because these matters, of course, are deeply important. So I think it was a, a forthright expression of their view. They then didn't seem... Well, I, I think they then, having said their piece, wanted to leave, and I really urged them to stay um, because I wanted to respond to what they said and to explain to them what I do say in the book and to try and, in a sense, sort out what seemed to be a misunderstanding that they, they had come to about what I was saying in the book. There seemed to be a focus on the um, pre-existing and continual enmity between the Jajawarung and the Tungarung people. And why was this important to note and how do you think it influenced the relationship between Aboriginals and the protectors and pastoralists? Well, I think it's crucial because clearly what, I think it's clear that what's going on is that other Aboriginal nations, in on the sort of borders between their country and the Jajarung, they are making attacks on the pastoralists and then the pastoralists are seeking to, in a way, wreak revenge for those attacks and often it's the Jajarung that are haplessly the sufferers of that revenge. I think because uh, of these often vexed relations between the Jajarung and other Aboriginal nations, that the Jajarung could have been seeking protection 
from Parker, not only from the pastoralists, but also from these other Aboriginal groups. But I think one way or the other, I think the dynamic of these relationships between the Aboriginal nations clearly plays a part in how the pastoralists react to the attacks by the neighbours of the Jarjarang. That then affects the Jarjarang, obviously, and then they act accordingly. And when I say they act accordingly, I think this makes them more open than they might otherwise have been to the offer of protection by Robinson and Parker. Do you think that the interactions that I talked about that occurred, uh, what purportedly occurred in Tasmania between Aboriginal tribes and the Europeans... That occurred here as well? I mean, the, because the Jajarang really didn't want to associate. There's a section in the book talking about Parker wanting to bring in other tribes, the Tungarong, and they didn't want them there in large numbers. Yes, and as you know, they really insist upon this, and I think it's, a, I think it's an important moment, and I think it's evident that Parker really just has to accept that those are the terms that the Jajarang are making. They will not have these other Aboriginal groups at Frankenfoot and or at a reserve. And I think what's also you know important in the story is that quite often it's believed these days that you know, Aboriginal people are herded, and the word herded is often used. Aboriginal people are herded onto onto reserves, and there's a lot of evidence that and the Jajarang is, is just one example of this, where the Jajarang play a role in deciding where these reserves are going to be located. They tell people like Parker. If you form a reserve there, we will not come to it. If you form it over there, yes, we think that is a place that it can be created and we support that. And if you create it there, we will go there. And you know, as is evident from what I've just said, I think it's important to recognise that the movement of Aboriginal people to these reserves at certain times in their history suggests that there is at least an element of their choosing to move to these reserves. At the same time, it's important to note that, that they're not choosing to move to those reserves permanently. As I said before in our discussion, for quite a number of years, the movement for Jajarang moved on and off Frankenfoot. The first protectorate, I think, that Parker presided over was in Sunbury, wasn't it? Well, when he starts out, he he forms a base there. That's always just a a temporary. And and then later, you know, he he moves to the area where the Jajarang are, and and there is considerable discussion. My sense was that the relationship between the Jajarang, at least, maybe not the Tungarang and the settlers, was mostly peaceful until they were forced to start stealing mobs of sheep due to starvation because of loss of their natural game. It seemed to me that the government turned a blind eye when pastoralists went beyond the boundaries of their licences. And there's a couple of things in relation to that. I wondered whether the colonial government and the protectorate system to some extent was simply there to appease special interest groups back home in the imperial government, so the the Aboriginal Protection Society, and so it became essentially a toothless tiger. That's a good question. If you take a figure like Sir George Gibbs as the governor of New South Wales, and so we're saying that he is the most important colonial political figure in the area which includes the Jajarung because the Port Phillip district is part of New South Wales. Sir George Gibbs is an evangelical. He is, I think, deeply troubled by the course that colonisation is taking. At the same time, he is deeply sceptical that a, a protectorate is going to serve the Aboriginal people's interests. I mean, he introduced the protectorate because he is directed to do so by Lord Glenelg as a Secretary of State for the Colonies in, uh, in Britain. From the outset, he thought that other methods were more likely to protect Aboriginal people. What methods did he think would be more effective? Uh, comm- commissioners of Crown Lands. He thought that commissions of, commissioners of Crown Land would be more on the spot more on the ground. I mean, because he knows that you know, all the British government has done is that they've appointed a chief protector and four assistant protectors for the Port Phillip District, and he knows that that's a vast area. Yeah. And so he knows from the start, I think, that the task they had was enormous with so few protectors. Gibbs also knows that in the resources that any colonial government has at this time are very limited. Uh, he knows, too, that 
the colonial economy is increasingly dependent on pastoralists and he is under a lot of pressure from the pastoralists. They are very antagonistic to the protectorate. They are saying, you know, you are protecting Aborigines, but you should be protecting us. They, you know, they, they petition Gibbs. They put a lot of pressure on him. They are and, in newspapers as well. Well, yes, yes. I mean, they have, even though it's, you know, it's, it's not a democratic system, it's still a, a very hierarchical system. But nonetheless, they have, as I just said, they have economic power. And Gibbs, I think, like a lot of these colonial political figures, is trying to walk a line between meeting the interests of a number of different parties. And you know, he tries to introduce legislation to New South Wales, which would enable Europeans to be prosecuted for the murder of Aboriginal people in trials that would allow Aboriginal people to give evidence in court. And that legislation has passed in New South Wales, but then the imperial government, the British government, overturns that legislation. Right. So, as you probably know, I mean, at the time it's held that only Christians could give evidence in court because you needed to swear on the Bible that you would tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I know that Parker disagreed with that and he, he had tried to prosecute these cases against pastoralists who essentially for all intents and purposes, were probably exterminators. Yes, and he, as you've seen from the book, I mean, those like Parker just got enormously frustrated because, as I've just said, Aboriginal people, their evidence, they could not give evidence in, in court. They could not be witnesses. And so what you were reliant on is whites being prepared to give evidence. And while that occurred in, in this famous um, trial in 1838 in New South Wales, resulting from the mild Creek Massacre in uh, northern New South Wales. But that was why uh, white men were eventually prosecuted and, and found guilty and executed um, in relation to the Mile Creek Massacre. That only happened because there were whites who were witnesses who were prepared to, to give testimony in court that this is what happened. But in most cases, whites were not prepared to do that. And so you said before, and Parker tries to bring these cases, uh, some of the other assistant protectors and the protectorate tried to bring cases. And in most cases, uh, well, in fact, in every case in Victoria, these cases were, were thrown out of court. There was even, a, I think there was a law where a man cannot turn witness against himself. That's right. So that's an, another, thank you for reminding us, that's a very important part of the law at the time. Yes, so um, the odds for successfully prosecuting the killers of Aboriginal people were, I mean, they were very badly, to say the least, stacked. This part interested me, the, the thing that precluded them from becoming witnesses, so bringing in, say, the Jaja Wurrung to turn witness against the shepherds in the Munro cases and give evidence that they weren't Christians, that they couldn't swear upon the Bible... Do we know whether that was supported by the evangelical philanthropists back in Britain? Well, as far as I know, they agreed with Sir George Kipps that this law should be changed in the case of New South Wales. That, as far as I know, that was their position because they saw this as a key part of, of protection. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Bain Atwood. I think it's also the, the case, and this goes back to what Parker in particular urges the uh, Gibbs and the New South Wales government to do. So he becomes convinced quite early on, as you can see from the book, he becomes convinced that really the only way of protecting Aboriginal people from the violence of settlers and the only way to protect them from sexual relations and, and venereal is to try and bring about a situation where... Aboriginal people have very little to do with the settlers. He tries to bring about a situation where you know, there's a reserve, encourage the Aboriginal people to come to it, provide them with rations in the hope that they will not be driven by their hunger, apart from anything else, to make attacks on pastoralists, which then could provoke pastoralists to retaliate. And he just comes to the view that this is the best way to proceed and he's able to persuade Robinson and then in turn Gibbs that reserves should be established. Because what the assistant protectors are direct to do in the first place by the British government is to move with the Aboriginal people. So as the Aboriginal people moved from place to place, that the idea was that the assistant protectors would move with them. 
the assistant protectors soon realised that that was, that was impractical, that they couldn't do that. I mean, for various reasons, it was impractical. But Parker was also convinced that that was not meeting this problem of increasing conflict between the pastoralists and Aboriginal people, hence his suggestion that what you needed, the system of reserves. In terms of the political environment of today, that political decisions and the expediency of political decisions are made because of special interest groups that not only lobbying state and federal Liberal and Labor governments, but they're actually embedded within them. I guess policy based upon social justice doesn't always occur because of that. I know that the title of Jeff Morrison's book was A Successful Failure in relation to the protectorate system. Do you think it was set up to fail? I don't think it was set up to fail. I think that there was a genuine commitment to protection. I think protection is, at least in the Australian context, is it's an ambiguous concept. I mean, at the heart of this notion of protection was an assumption of an Aboriginal people's weakness, of Aboriginal people's vulnerability. I think that those responsible for formulating the policy and practice of protection, on the one hand, had the interests of Aboriginal people at heart, albeit in the way they conceived those interests. At the same time, I, I would say that many of these protectors had an investment in a notion of Aboriginal weakness um, because it consciously or unconsciously served their sense of themselves as benevolent, more capable, more authoritative, more knowing, and so on and so forth. But I would still argue, as I've argued at various points in this conversation, that I believe we have to ask what would have happened without this policy of protection. Well, certainly the protectorate system, I think, was vastly underrated in terms of what it did. I think it was a success in some sense. Was the pressure of those other groups so powerful pastoralists and not all of the pastoralists were people who you may consider to be exterminators. Some of them yeah. were conciliators and some people were quite progressive in terms of Aboriginal people. But yeah. do you think powerful forces brought an end to it? Well, I think they not only brought an end to it, but they also undermined it relatively early in the piece. If you look at the level of expenditure, or to put that another way, the funding that was provided to the protectorate originally that by, is it 1842 or 1843, that funding has been slashed. And I think it's clear that the funding is slashed by the government in response to this enormous criticism of the protectorate that was carried out in the pages of newspapers in both Melbourne and Sydney. And that the cutting of that funding that certainly diminished the resources that were available to those like Parker. And it meant that a good deal of what he wanted to do at Franklin Foot became very difficult, if not impossible. And that clearly what progressively happens is that the resources that government commit to protecting Aboriginal people become less and less over time and and, you know, what the Australian anthropologist Bill Stanner once called a history of indifference towards Aboriginal people starts to take hold. Do you think that that history of indifference has persisted? No, I wouldn't say so. Well, you know, at the risk of generalisation, I think that that history of indifference persisted on and off through until the 1930s. But I think one could argue that since the 1930s, there has been you know, a growing concern about and for Aboriginal people. And I would say that there has been for some time in Australia a commitment for various reasons on the part of government to try and address Aboriginal disadvantage. One could argue a great deal about how government goes about that. One also has to note, of course, the continuing degree of of Aboriginal disadvantage. But I would say that for various reasons, I don't think it would be appropriate to say that governments in Australia continue to be indifferent 
two Aboriginal people. Professor Bayan Adwood, thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. All right, so that was uh, Professor Bain Atwood. Thank you, Professor Atwood, for being with us on Deep Trouble. Mark, what did you think of that? How did you go with that? It was interesting. I've read The Good Country. It's an updated history on an earlier work that he produced, and I think he talked about working with the Jajara Rung to update the history. We basically look at some of the complexity around the, the characters who were involved, such as George A. Robinson, the chief protector, and mm. Edward Stone Parker, who ran the protectorate, which was uh, known as the Broken Forest Country out at Franklin Ford. Sounds a lot like the lyrics from a song that we do, isn't it? I think we'll probably have to cut that Called part out. Called Broken Forest Country <laughs> by the Stivos. Right. <laughs> yeah, look, I recommend the Stivos. Have a listen to that song. It's all about sure. the Franklin Fed Protectorate. It is indeed. And their iron bark gates. Yes. So it's a fascinating history, a tragic one to some extent in terms of the massacres that were perpetrated by some of the settlers, such as Monroe and Captain Morgan, as we know. Mm. Um, and so it's a serious topic. Now, we're coming to the end of the series, uh, of, of our first series, and we're very pleased with what we've done. We're very thankful of our listeners. We want to thank you for, for listening to Deep Trouble, following Deep Trouble, subscribing to Deep Trouble, and please tell everyone about it. The more you spread the word, uh, the further we go, and it, and it enables us to keep on going with this, this series. Also on 94.9 Main FM... We also sincerely want to thank Steve Charman for producing this show for us at 94.9 Main FM and the radio station itself for hosting it. Wouldn't have been possible without you guys, so really appreciate your work on this and thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, it's not possible without Steve or Main FM. Absolutely. And there's one more episode to come. That was then, this is now. It was recorded live just last week. So that was a, an event for the Castlemaine Children's Literature Festival. We're looking forward to playing that one. And so that'll be the last episode in this first series of Deep Trouble. There will be a second series next year. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine.